This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio Show. Monday, Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, coming up, we've got PMQs unpacked, of course, because it's a Wednesday. Tim Shipman and I pause the action live from the House of Commons as Keir Starmer tackles Boris Johnson about Yemen. And Boris Johnson got basically very cross that Keir Starmer didn't ask him about uh, anything that was going rather better. Uh, we've also got the columnist panel uh, with uh, Alice Thompson and John Camphter talking about uh, power struggles and interior design in number 10. But of course, the big political story of the day is the budget. Uh, Patrick McGuire, the new Red Box editor, editor of the Red Box Morning Email, uh, joins me now, having just been glued to the House of Commons. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm all right. Wild horses couldn't drag me away, but you've managed to. <laughs> so what's your, before we get down into the nitty gritty, uh, we obviously knew quite a lot of it. It had already been slightly released. So um, uh, what's your big takeaway, big, 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 big picture takeaway of the budget? Well, my big picture takeaway is actually that if you went back in time to 2014 and said, and showed someone the text of this budget speech and says, um, we've left the European Union, the Chancellor's just stood up and live in this budget, you'd probably think Labour and UKIP have formed a coalition, despite the fact um, of all the briefings that this was the moment that Sunak would begin um, to take the mask off, as Keir Starmer put it, and begin his programme of fiscal retrenchment, you know, uh, cutting and raising taxes. That's not really the story of the budget at all. Yes, corporation tax will go up by 2026, as will the income tax thresholds, but really, I actually think the story is that this isn't the moment a new Rishi Sunak has presented himself to the public. Uh, it's interesting you say that because I thought what, what struck me was uh, that instead of going for sort of populist uh, or popular anyway, you know, I don't know, a pay rise for nurses or, uh, you know, a penny off a pint of beer in pubs to get people back. Um, all the stuff we had briefed was all quite familiar. The um, extension of furlough, the extension of uh, VAT cuts for hospitality and an uh, extension of universal credit uplift and so on. All of that was sort of familiar. The rabbits out of the hat were very, I mean, a bit dull 
you know, good ones for the business pages and the uh, economists. Um, you know, the, the super deduction for to encourage business investment. You know, free ports. These are big economic ideas. They're going to cost a lot of money. And basically, what Richard Sunak is doing is hoping to, you know, actually put his economic firepower under the economy. Presumably, to hope the economy is growing by much more uh, than currently forecast by the time of the next election, rather than going for any sort of cheap whiz bang uh, announcements this time around. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, in a sense, the the extension of all the emergency measures until September, furlough, the self-employed grant, um, the universal credit uplift, although there will be a fight over that in September when it's scheduled to end, um, and all the and, you know the stamp duty holiday, all of which was sort of extensively brief before. You know, nobody is going to go to Tesco tomorrow and find that a um, you know, a pasty from the deli counter is is going to be more expensive. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know what I mean? Like the the immediate impact um, was sort of insulated from that, given that we are not out of the woods in terms of the pandemic quite yet, anyway. So actually, the only the only the only recourse he did have to pull rabbits out of the hat um, were on those big picture things. And even then, you know, a free port. Um, there there are, there is huge debate over whether. Um, they are worth the, um, I was going to say worth the, the paper they're printed on, but that's not quite what a free port is. Um, you know, that whether they're worth the hassle, but there's something tangible you can point to if you're Rishi Sunak and say, hey, this is what we're doing for, for Teesside. Um, ditto the, the, the corporation tax stuff. Um, you know, you have an exemption for the, the politics, the poli- you know, it's a popular measure and you have an exemption for the sorts of, uh, small businesses that might be clobbered so, with it what, anyway. Patrick, just, just explain, as a listener service, explain, explain it as best you can what a free port is. A free, a free port is um, an area of the country confusingly doesn't necessarily have to be near water, um, as is the case with East Midlands Airport, um, which is to become a free port, where you basically rules on planning, uh, customs, excise, uh, are all sort of relaxed to encourage inward investment and make them a better place to trade and do business. Um, and but, but economists say actually the problem is that you end up shifting businesses from elsewhere in the country to these places rather than you know having an, a really vibrant uh, startup scene uh, near the M1 in the East Midlands. And I suppose that that's the point. So the idea is that you can you can bring you can set up your business within this this sealed area, the free port. You can import some some parts, put them all together into something, and then export them again. And lo and behold, you've not had to pay any uh, tariffs and so on. But you're right; it might be is it okay if you're a new business or maybe you're a business abroad that moves here? That's one thing. But if you're a business that was previously outside the free port and you just move into it, then you're just shuffling business around and maybe it doesn't bring the big economic boost. In terms of uh, the Labour Party and the response from Keir Starmer, it's a tough gig for uh, the leader of the Labour Party to respond, having literally only just heard uh, the the Chancellor. And it felt a bit like uh, Keir Starmer had some jokes, unusually for him, it has to be said, making some jokes about, you know, Rishi Sunak's social media and... uh, um, uh, redecorating Downing Street. Was there any substance to it? Will Labour be able to find something to sort of uh, make this budget more than a sort of flash in the pan that we've all forgotten about by the end of the week? Well, the tricky thing for Labour is that there's actually, beyond um, the universal credit 
increase, which Starmer uh, cut rather, which Starmer hinted that he would rather reverse permanently or rather keep the uplift permanently. There's little in here Labour can object to on principle. Now, Starmer even at one point said, you know, Sunak had mentioned green recovery bonds. And Starmer said, well, that's a fantastic idea because that I'm sure no listener has forgotten that Keir Starmer gave a, a blockbuster speech on the economy last week. British recovery bonds were Starmer's big idea in that speech. Um, and so much of what his response was, this isn't enough. You know, this is only rhetoric. Well, it's not object. There's no principled objection to to what the government are doing. It's it's sort of, you know, objecting by degree. And that's a really tricky position for the Labour Party to be in. And also the critique of Sunak on so on so many things can be boiled down to Starmer saying, you know, isn't it a shame or isn't it terrible that you're so good at politics? You know, talking about Sunak taking off his mask or whatever. When actually this this uh, budget is a triumph for Sunak in a sense um, of managing to ride those two horses at once. You know, the you know leveling with the public, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, starting to set out measures measures to, um, you know. Claw back the claw back the debt, which he thinks is the most important thing, but also um, having a clutch of good news stories as well. So it just shows you the the, the range uh, Sunak and this Conservative Party have politically, and really, it's quite difficult for the Labour Party to find um, an attack that cuts through. And one of the striking things, particularly with Annalise Dodds, who I don't need to remind listeners, is the shadow is Labour's shadow chancellor, uh, seems to have got herself in a bit of a pickle recently by saying now is not the time for tax rises, talking about corporation tax, but then not committing to when, whether or not there is ever a time for them or what the time uh, might be. And so a long term was Rishi Sunak says, right, we're going to put corporation tax up to 25 percent from 2023. I mean, by the end of this parliament, that raises a whopping 17 billion pounds. I mean, there's lots of tapering and that sort of thing. That's the sort of headline headline rate. Um, uh, Labour now need to sort of make a decision, don't they? Is that too late? Is that too soon? Is it too high? Is it too low? Uh, because and, and it was started to get into the realms of if if uh, Keir Starmer wants to be this sort of constructive opposition, well, they need to start saying what they would do instead. You know, similarly on universal credit. You know, the, Rishi Sunak said, "Right, we're going to extend this extra twenty pounds a week by six months." Well, Labour basically need to say then well, we would make it permanent or we wouldn't. And if you're not, well, when would you stop it? And why stop it a month later than, than, than Rishi Sunak? And actually, similarly, on when Keir Starmer got out from the House of Commons talking about social care, where's the government's plan for social care? A totally legitimate criticism of uh, the fact that Boris Johnson announced on the steps of number 10 in 2019 as Prime Minister, we've got a plan to fix social care. Uh, Keir Starmer says, uh, we, we've got a plan. Basically, Keir Starmer, let me have a look at my notes. He says, uh, Keir Starmer gets up and says, the Chancellor has forgotten about that, but the Labour Party never will. So where's Labour's plan to fix social care? And I suppose it was sort of inching towards now, if it's a slight return to politics as normal, post-pandemic and all of that. The Labour Party has to start putting some flesh on the bones. Otherwise, it's just essentially tutting from the sidelines. Yeah, and also I don't think it's enough. Uh, you know, there are a couple of good gags in Starmer's speech about the Instagram budget and, um, you know, uh, uh, next door neighbours doing up the flat. I, I just think it's quite tricky for Labour to oppose this Chancellor, mainly because he's the most popular politician in the country. Um, and as you say, there is, if, if, if Keir Starmer got up tomorrow and announced a new policy on social care, I, I doubt many people would listen. Um, but it is a really, really tricky task for Labour to oppose a budget like this. I'm not sure anybody has 
the answer. Um, and on, on the evidence of the past couple of weeks, I don't think anyone in the Labour Party has yet worked out where the best angle to attack this government from. And it may be that it doesn't exist, a government spraying money around the country, or at least being seen to spray money around the country in the way that this government is, uh, clobbering big corporations with tax increases and exempting uh, smaller ones from the from the top rate. I just think the politics of this are, are, are very shrewd. Obviously, the economics are a separate question. Maybe by 2025, when more people are dragged into income tax, they'll be more receptive to a Labour message. But for now, it's very difficult to see how Starmer and Annalise Dodds land a blow on this Chancellor. Well, Patrick McGuire, lovely to speak to you. Patrick is the new editor of the Redbox Morning Email. He's taking over in what, a couple of weeks. Uh, every, he'll be in your inbox every morning. Uh, you can sign up to that if you are a Times subscriber, of course. You just go to the times.co.uk forward slash Redbox. And if you want to read more about the budget and all the bits and pieces that Patrick and I have completely missed, just go to the times.co.uk. Everything right now, everything that you need in terms of, uh, you know, things that maybe the chance has slightly skipped over, the the impact, the reaction, the economic reaction, the political reaction and uh, and so on. Uh, Patrick, McGuire, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, now it's time for our columnists panel. Uh, because we did this on the radio before the old budget got going, uh, we steer clear of the budget. But anyway, it's Wednesday, so it must be Cap Alice. It's John Kapner and Alice Thompson. Uh, Alice, let's start with your column in the Times today. Why successful women uh, must be taken down? Uh, what, no, why must successful women be taken down? And you're sort of drawing together different threads of this. But obviously, one of the big things we've seen uh, in uh, politics, at least, is the, the attitudes towards uh, Carrie Simons uh, in uh, number 10 and the influence she's wielding or not wielding, uh, supposedly. What's your take on it all? Well, there's been another story in the last couple of days about wallpaper, effectively, um, which is whether Carrie has um, demanded to have the whole flat in number 10 and 11 wallpapered um, and done in a very smart design by a little. Um, and um, incredibly, this has sort of blown up as a sort of Marie Antoinette figure. And she's already been called um, Lady Macbeth. And um, then she's been called um, Anne Boleyn. So it's beginning to look like a pattern now when actually it's not all about Carrie really at number 10 and shouldn't be, but she's been blamed for absolutely everything that happens and she's been turned into this sort of caricature and it does seem to happen quite often with women at number 10 and women more generally still that you see this pattern when at first you just see pictures of them looking lovely and pretty and aren't they wonderful and they're on their you know, man's side and, and you sort of build them up and then we absolutely bombard them with um, what we think is wrong with them, why they're too manipulative, why they're not manipulative enough, whether they're doing enough, what they're doing. And then you get this stage when I think they just, you know, they, some of them do just crack. And you've seen that. And I've talked and interviewed lots of MPs and lots of people in the public eye. And the men do not get this kind of vitriol um, in any way at all. I mean, most of the women I talk to in politics have had some sort of death threat, often a rape threat. And men just don't understand when you start talking about that kind of thing. They don't have anything like the women have. And actually, even in sport, the women commentators in sport, particularly on the BBC, have been completely abused online and you know one of them broke down recently in her car in tears and then the you know the vitriol continued it was all about how appalling she was for having broken down what, Sorry, what do you make over. of this John? <laughs> no 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 it's good and it's, it's why i wanted to talk about your columns today what, what, what do you make of it uh john in politics and in life generally yeah i mean 
I completely agree with with um, what Alice has said. I, I think I would separate out two things. One is generic abuse um, of women, particularly online, which is, yeah, I mean, all men, you know, male politicians, commentators, this, that, and the other, you know, they get slagging, they get slagged off all the time, and there's a good element of if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, particularly with journalists. You know, if you dish it, you should take it. But it is very, very different towards women, and it is of a depth and extent. Uh, you know, female MPs of all parties get it in a way that men don't. So to that extent, I'm completely with your argument, Alice. I was actually having a, a, a Twitter very polite sort of ding-dong with your partner in crime, Rachel Sylvester, about this um, a few days ago. Where I would differ on the uh, carry number 10 question is is this. It's absolutely not in the assessment of the ad hominem uh, attacks that she get that, that is completely out of proportion and, and male uh, conciliary uh, Dennis Thatcher, well, that's pre-Twitter, um, but uh, Mr. May, Philip May never got that. That's absolutely right. The, the total inconsistency and misogyny, I totally get. But sh she is quite clearly exercising influence that a spouse, male or female, uh, in an ideal world shouldn't. If she wants to be political, and she has every right to be, and she used to be a special advisor in a Conservative Party uh, official, then she should stand for Parliament. And there's no shortage of of situations in which that happens. And then she should exercise a political power and be scrutinised on that account. I mean, that is slightly the point, isn't it, Alice? It's, it's not just that, you know, I, I can't even... I did try to work out what, what it was that Philip May did, but it was something very boring in pensions. <laughs> and to the extent that, you know, it, you know, Theresa May was not a massive share of what was going on in, in, uh, in her mind, even with her husband at times. But... Uh, I mean, clearly, Carrie Simon's job is a political strategist. That's how she got to know uh, Boris Johnson so well. You know, there was birthday parties. You know, she was a special advisor to several cabinet ministers. She was director of communications for the Conservative Party. So she, she, she is more involved in politics than others. And clearly, whatever uh, um, the the briefing and the 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 details of it and the veracity of it and the language being used she is clearly involved in decision making in what's going on in number 10 in a way that the others haven't been she is but on the other hand if you look at sherry blair she had exactly the same vitriol aimed at her and you know there was endless stories and i'm complicit in this we rewrote endless stories about her and i remember that terrible time when she was forced to go up and talk about how she tried to juggle all the balls and dropped one there was another time when she had to talk about her miscarriage and you just thought this is insane that we're getting to this level, that actually a lot of what Carrie is doing is not about, oh, she's trying to, you know, save badges or this or that. It's actually purely based at that, just trying to get at her and that way trying to get to her husband. And I think whatever you think of the politics, we shouldn't really allow women to be treated like this. I mean, she is political, but it's also disingenuous to say that she can stand as an MP. She can't. She may give advice, but most couples vaguely talk she about their jobs. Probably she could stand, yeah. It would I mean, be very uh, difficult for her to stand as an MP at the next. No, from, I, no. You think of Francois Hollande and um, you know, uh, sorry, not uh, Sarko and uh, no, you know. Good. I mean, I guess you know, look I mean, what happened to them. I mean, it's not. It's, it's much. Yeah, harder but I mean, yes, yeah, she, technically she, she could. It, whether or not it's wise is a separate question. Yeah, she would. It would be yeah. very hard for her to do that. And actually, she has her own job. And you know, actually, probably she talks to Boris Johnson about her job. I'm sure they discuss. I mean, you know, your, your what they're going to do about the methods. 
your your point about Sherry, Alice, in my view, is half right, half wrong. Yeah, of course, exactly the same monstering that she gets, which is uh, completely unacceptable. But she was a lawyer. She was doing all kinds of things. She was defending... Uh, no, she was prosecuting on behalf of human rights against her husband's own government. She was doing all kinds of completely fascinating, extraordinary things that were completely uh, her prerogative to do. And she had a very public legal political persona. And, and you know, my view always was, was, yeah, the ad hominem stuff against her was completely unacceptable but you know she had a, a perfectly respectable job and she she required to be scrutinized for that job and and carrie should be doing the same yeah and they've both been treated appallingly for it they're not they're picked apart there you know i can't remember a single time that we actually talked about Theresa may's husband philip and what he was wearing and what he was doing we just didn't do that we didn't talk about their you know compare their legs people, we didn't I mean, do any large, of that sort I... of sense of it did we if by and large, I mean, if we park curtains for a moment and the the um, the, the the eco furniture or whatever that is that, that uh, Carrie's, I mean, most of the conversation has hasn't been about what Carrie's wearing. It is about her influence over over hiring and firing policy in number ten. And I suppose the thing that we don't get on to talking about is what all this again points to is that Boris Johnson, this sort of sense that Boris Johnson isn't really in charge. And whether it was Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane calling the shots, or is it now Carrie and Allegra, uh, or is it you know Dan Rosenfeld, or is it Michael, G- or whatever it is. Do you think that Boris Johnson is, does have a grip? Is he? I mean, you know him quite well, uh, Alice, because you used to work with him. Do, do you get? Is, is he the sort of person who's quite happy for others to sort of run the show around him? Yeah, well, he's a huge pleaser, so he wants to please everyone around him whenever he can. Although I think he's becoming tougher now, in the way that Tony Blair also had to become tougher. So I think you know you can see that that he's having to stand up. He's now having to. You know, he was always late to lockdowns because he didn't want to feel that he was the one that was forcing everyone into it. So I think he is probably trying to be a harder, tougher man rather than want everyone to love him. Um, but I think at the same time, I mean, if you if you think about it, everyone always has this in number ten. You always have these arguments. But before it was at least based on the principal players. So with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, um, when they were having their arguments, it was about those two men. And I think that's what it should be about here that it needs to be about the main players that we shouldn't try and pick off the smaller players or play it as a kind of um sexist rant really in the end you want to talk about the policies as well and about the people at the top but i think it's more sinister than the way you portrayed it matt <clears throat> this is also a government that more than any in recent years seems to be embroiled in almost a culture almost a daily occurrence of cronyism of government contracts for mates, for next-door neighbours, for mates of next-door neighbours, setting up sort of shell organisations so that they can sort of squirrel money to people to do do different contracts. And the fact that we don't have a tenacious opposition that is holding uh, the government to the count, and to a large degree there's an element of of media sort of pliance and... and, um, subservience to this government i think they're getting away with all kinds of things and this sort of informality of um bending people's ears and not going through processes i think is is worse than it's described let me put the counter argument i'm not you know i'm i'm not going to defend uh you know outright corruption but if your house was flooded would you go round to your neighbour who you knew had a water pump or would you ring round half a dozen people to get the best price on getting a pump? I mean, there is a, there is a case for saying that 
it, last summer, it was all hands on deck, wasn't it? Actually, we were berating the government for their uselessness in acquiring PPE or whatever. And wouldn't you b- contact every single person you knew who might be able to help out in the national effort? The, to dismiss yeah, it all as just cronyism that. and backscratching is is to slightly play down the, the state we were in to almost this time last year. You can understand it at the beginning because I think people were absolutely desperate and there was a lot of running around. Um, I think then you have to try and formalise it as soon as you can. And yeah, I think uh, we were I'm in a totally very different position yeah. then. I think the other issue is I think when you start talking about um, getting other people to pay for your flat being done up, that's the issue that I think we should find about. I think that we can't have people, pay, you know, giving money over to pay for flats or then you could end up with paying for clothes. You could go all the way, couldn't you? It would be paying for school fees. I mean, it would just be that, that, the, that's uh, not this... the point. Um, this is the suggestion that's... they're going to set up a charity. Uh, um, th- this is the idea. They'd, they'd set up a charity which uh, Tory donors would give money to the charity, which would pay for the refurb in, in Danish. I mean, I think actually there's a difference between... I think you could have a charity which is responsible for the, the sort of number 10 building, the Downing Street that's used for state occasions and meetings and staff and that sort of thing. But I think if Carrie wants a new sofa, she could probably pay for it herself, couldn't she? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, Downing Street actually is quite shabby. I mean, you've been there, I've been there. That, I think, actually should be paid for by the taxpayer because the rooms aren't being used. I mean, apart from in Love Actually, when, you know, you get Hugh Grant dancing around. And they're not really used much by the family. It's actually for state visits or for, you know, big occasions and a lot for charity. So that is worth us paying for and it should look good. But I think the upstairs rooms really just need kind of some paint, don't they? <laughs> yeah, uh, and I loved just... also the, the the battle over taste as well. All this briefing and counter briefing, and Theresa May had, had the temerity to um, do up the flat uh, in a John Lewis style. You know, um, whereas, She'll love whereas... That, won't she? <laughs> I thought that that was that was the most damning. I mean, it was one of those lines which just works for everyone. Yeah, she wants to remove. <laughs> Carrie wants to remove all of Theresa May's, uh, you know, John Lewis look. I thought yeah. I, I was I was chatting with a colleague about this yesterday and saying, you know, we've got all I kit. What we'd love, we'd love a bit of John Lewis. But, you know, <laughs> this John Lewis is not good enough. for them. Out with the John Lewis and in with the with the who knows what. John Campbell and Alice Thompson there. Right. Coming up next on the podcast, it's PMQ's Unpacked. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, so it must be time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yes, Tim Shipman, political editor of the Sunday Times, joins me for PMQ's Unpacked. So how we do PMQ's every week here on Times Radio, we pause the action live for trying to explain what's going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Tim Shipman, a slightly strange PMQ's this one always, the amuse-bouche before the full meal of, uh, of the budget. Um, what can we expect from uh, Keir Starmer at PMQs? Um, bearing in mind he's going to have to respond to the budget as well. Um, what, yeah, what he's got one of those like, like one of those days where you have the two T uh, Twenty semi-finals in a single day. Poor old Starmer's got two games. He's got to take on Johnson and Sunak. Be interesting to see uh, which of them he lays a, a firmer glove on. I mean, what you normally do in a PMQs before the budget is uh, find something populist and exciting that's in the news to have a pop at um, and I suspect that's what he'll do and given that Keir Starmer can't really probably say a great deal about what's happening in Scotland or about what's happening in Buckingham Palace um, will he perhaps have a go at Boris Johnson attempting to set up a charity to do up Downing Street um, and have his uh, 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 you know his decorating done on the taxpayer Um, that might be one way of causing a bit of mischief and having a bit of fun uh, ahead of time. Uh, there's not a lot he can do on the vaccine, I don't think. Um, you know, there's lots of good news there with people saying that the vaccine gives you, um, stops you transmitting the virus. Boris Johnson, I'm sure, will chop that out if he gets any questions uh, on COVID. So it's a sticky wicket for Starmer up, up front. And just to, sort of more broadly across across the piece politically, I mean, I remember Ed Miliband always having this problem uh, when he was leader of the Labour Party and the Labour Party was the third most interesting uh, party in, in British politics, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems in government. With everything that's going on in Scotland, um, you know, Keir Starmer sort of has the same problem, really. He's just the Labour Party just isn't where the action is. No, exactly. Boris Johnson's delighted that the Conservative Party is finally not the most interesting party tearing itself apart in British politics. Um, and in a sense, you know, uh, Labour isn't doing that either, but they're certainly doing a bit of soul searching about how they become more interesting. Um, uh, and it'd be interesting to see whether Starmer grabs a sort of populist olive branch passing by and, and, and does something with it or whether he uh, confines himself to something more statesmanlike today. This is probably a time for some jokes about sofas and uh, eco-friendly interior designers, but whether or not that's necessarily in Keir Starmer's armoury, I'm not totally sure. Yeah, that's right. And that's what gets you a page lead in the tabloids tomorrow. It's a story that lots of people are talking about. um, And it's a classic one for a sort of slightly, um, you know, when the main action is later, it's quite good to focus on something like that, have a bit of fun, um, show people you've got a sense of humour, show people that you can tease the Prime Minister. Boris Johnson is the great one for using humour himself, but most Prime Ministers don't like having the mickey taken out of them, and PMQs is a good opportunity to do that. 
Boris Johnson's also a great one for blurting out good news slightly ahead of events. So it'll be interesting to see if he he lets slip anything which is coming up in the budget uh, before he's supposed to. Uh, so well, he wouldn't be uh, alone in that, would he? Given that the Treasury Central brief <laughs> quite a lot of it, and other ministers have blurted other things out. So, okay, let's go to the House of Commons now and hear from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in his comments about the Salisbury atrocity? Um, does the Prime Minister agree with President Biden? that the sale of arms that could be used in the war in Yemen should be suspended? Uh, Mr Speaker, ever since the uh, tragic conflict in uh, Yemen broke out, this country has scrupulously followed the uh, consolidated guidance of which uh, uh, he will be well aware. OK, so let's, ju- let, let's jump in there. He's done what you... Actually, is quite a smart thing to do. He's leapt on an issue. It's a big issue, uh, but hasn't had a huge amount of, uh, of airtime. We've, we've discussed it quite a bit on, on uh, Times Radio in the past couple of days. The, the, the broad issue of Yemen, he's focusing particularly on um, uh, arms exports, but I suspect he's going to come on, Tim, to the fact that the government's cut the amount of aid it's going to give to Yemen from over £200 million to something like £80 million. Yeah, and the other old, the other issue that's become a big one is that you know um, Britain's been sending a lot of stuff to Saudi Arabia, who've been uh, intervening there. The Biden administration have taken a view that they want to uh, cut off uh, some of that military aid, um, and that's going to put Boris Johnson in an awkward position. Um, but if you were looking for something as far away from Downing Street decorations as possible, uh, the war in Yemen is probably it. I'm not sure if that means we don't know what we're talking about or Keir Starmer should listen to us, but let's go back and see how uh, Keir Starmer unpacks this. The trouble is that whilst President Biden has suspended arms sales that could be used in Yemen, the UK hasn't. In fact, we sold £1.4 billion of arms to Saudi Arabia in, the last, in three months last year, including bombs and missiles that could be used in Yemen. Given everything we know about the appalling humanitarian cost of this war, with innocent civilians caught between the Saudi coalition and the Houthi rebels. Why does the Prime Minister think it's right to be selling these weapons? Uh, Mr Speaker, the UK is part of an international uh, coalition following the uh, UN resolutions, which uh, uh, he will know well, uh, which uh, are uh, very clear that the legitimate government of uh, Yemen was uh, removed uh, illegally. Uh, those are the resolutions that we, we follow, and we continue scrupulously to follow uh, the humanitarian guidance, which are amongst the toughest measures anywhere in the world in respect of all arms sales. He talks about uh, humanitarian relief, Mr Speaker, and actually I think the people of this country can be hugely proud of what we are doing to support the people of Yemen. Uh, almost £1 billion of aid contributed uh, in the last five years, Mr Speaker. Yes, Starmer. Uh, Paul Johnson sounding a little unsure on his feet, given he's a former Foreign Secretary, being across this sort of stuff uh, shouldn't be too much of a, of a surprise for him. Um, interesting that he then uh, moved to talking about how Britain's given the uh, Yemen £1 billion over the past five years, which I suspect slightly tees up Keir Starmer's next complaint about the fact they're cutting aid for this year. Yeah, you could almost hear the, the cogs in Boris Johnson's uh, brain whirring there, going, what do I remember of Yemen? Oh, for goodness sake, come to me, come to me. Um, th- there wasn't quite the ruffling of papers, but I suspect this was not the issue he was expecting to have to go on today. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Starmer's uh, made some good points so far, and Johnson, um, at the moment, um, uh, probably just digging himself a slightly deeper pit um, into which he's now about to be pushed. 
if you're watching, uh, if you're if you're listening and uh, not watching, you can. Uh, Boris Johnson has got his folder open. He doesn't appear to be referring to it. So you do wonder if uh, the uh, the the why uh, section in his uh, in his folder, his tabs, might not have an awful lot about Yemen in. Uh, so he's having to slightly uh, do this off the hoop. Uh, let's go back to uh, Keir Starmer for question three. Mr. Speaker, he says the system's very robust in relation to arms sales. It can't be that robust. The government lost a court case just two years ago in relation to arms sales. The truth is the UK is increasingly isolated in selling arms to Saudi Arabia, despite what's happening in Yemen, despite Saudi Arabia's human rights record, and the brutal murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a murder the US has concluded was approved by the Saudi Crown Prince. So I have to ask, what will it take for the Prime Minister to suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia? Speaker, uh, we could uh, condemn the murder of Jamal uh, Khashoggi. We continue to call uh, for a full investigation into the causes of his death. And indeed, uh, we have already sanctioned 20 people, uh, Mr Speaker, in Saudi Arabia. And I repeat the, the point that I have made, that the UK government continues to follow the consolidated guidance, uh, which, by the way, Mr Speaker, was set up by the Labour Party. Oh, let's jump in. Uh, let's just jump in there, uh, Tim Shipman. Um, it, it's interesting. This as a choice of topic, I'm sure it's something that, that Keir Starmer cares uh, an awful lot about. But it is, of course, one which sort of slightly um, uh, at a time when someone on the left of the Labour Party have been critical of Keir Starmer, it does sort of slightly uh, help him out um, on that front because it is something that will be popular with the Labour left. Very much so. I was going to make the same point myself. I think they. Um... You know, they've been looking for excuses uh, to be annoyed with Keir Starmer recently. Um, some of his uh, manoeuvrings over the budget um, and appearing to oppose tax rises um, uh, have upset the left greatly. This is absolutely in their wheelhouse. And this is the first PMQs for a little while where you could imagine Jeremy Corbyn asking very similar questions to the ones that, that Keir Starmer has asked. Well, it's funny you should say that, Tim. I just looked it up. And uh, uh, June the 26th, 2019, uh, Jeremy Corbyn tackled Theresa May over uh, the question of uh, arms sales to Saudi Arabia, wondering why Britain uh, 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 was still doing it and not uh, agreeing to any uh, sort of ban. Um, uh, that was on the, in the wake of the High Court ruling, which I think the, uh, Keir Starmer just made reference to. So you're, you're completely right. Um, Keir Starmer and uh, Jeremy Corbyn singing from the same hymn sheet. Who'd have thought? Uh, let's go back to the comments. Mr Speaker, to make matters worse, the government decided this week to halve international aid to Yemen. Halve it. The UN has said that Yemen faces the worst famine the world has seen for decades. And the Secretary General said on Monday that cutting aid would be in his words, a death sentence for the people of Yemen. How on earth can the Prime Minister justify selling arms to Saudi Arabia and cutting aid to people starving in Yemen? Mr Speaker, it is under this government that we have increased uh, aid spending uh, to the highest proportion uh, in uh, the history of, of our country. And yes, uh, it is true that current uh, straightened circumstances, which I'm sure the people of this country understand, mean that temporarily we must uh, reduce uh, aid spending. But that does not obscure the fact, Mr Speaker, that when it comes to our duty to the people of Yemen, we continue to step up to the plate. Uh, a, a contribution of £214 million uh, for this financial year. There are very few other countries in the world, Mr Speaker, that have such a record, that are setting such an example in spending and supporting uh, the people of Yemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And there it is, that question of the, the cut in aid. And this isn't just a sort of left-right thing, is it, um, uh, Tim Shipman? We've had David Cameron has criticised the cut in the overall cut in the aid budget. We had former government minister uh, Andrew Mitchell this week, Jeremy Hunt, all expressing uh, quite strong anger at this decision to cut aid to Yemen. Yeah, and to cut aid in general. Um, uh, this was a decision Rishi Sunak made. Um, uh, Boris Johnson went along with it. Um, and um, it's upset a lot of people across the spectrum. I mean, you know, it's an interesting answer there from Boris Johnson saying, you know, that aid spending had risen to its highest ever level under this government before admitting, of course, that he's now cutting it. Um, and this is what the debate's all about. You know, Boris Johnson is correct to say that Britain is extremely generous in terms of its aid and has probably given more money to Yemen than most countries have. Um, but when you have a reputation for being generous, if you start going around cutting it, you do pay a political price for that, both at home um, you know, with some voters, but also, um, uh, you know, in your standing internationally. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people who've made an argument against this cutting aid would say it's not really about the nuts and bolts of, um, you know, precisely how much is sent and precisely how generous we are. It's about uh, the signals you send and the symbols that you represent, you know, in the world. Um, and Britain's reputation has taken a little bit of a hit as a result of that. Uh, and Boris Johnson knows it. And it also feels a little bit at odds. At the beginning of the year, there was lots of talk about how 2021 was going to be Boris Johnson's chance to shine on the world stage. He's got the G7 in the summer, uh, the COP26 talks uh, in the autumn, uh, talks on climate change. Uh, and uh, he, he's got the rotating presidency this month of uh, uh, the UN as well. So there was a sort of sense of, well, he, this is how he can sort of put his stamp on uh, global politics, if you like. And his first sort of big global thing to do is to cut aids. It, it doesn't, it, you know, it's going to be tough to persuade other countries to up their budget, isn't it? Yeah, and particularly, I think I spoke to a minister last week who said when we get to the COP summit in November, you know, we will pay a price and take a hit for, for that aid cut uh, because it will be more difficult to persuade people uh, to do things that they don't want to do um, uh, in terms of uh, green spending. That's interesting. That. Well, let's go back to the House of Commons. This week, the government halved our international aid to Yemen. If, the, if this is what the Prime Minister thinks global Britain should look like, he should think again. And if he doesn't believe me, doesn't like it from me or the UN Secretary-General, he should listen to his own MPs. Just this morning, the Conservative MP for Bournemouth East said, cutting support to starving children is not what global Britain should be about. It undermines the very idea of the UK as a nation to be respected on the global stage. And the Honourable Member for Sutton Coalfield said this, this was unconscionable. Will the Prime Minister now do the right thing and reconsider this urgently? Mr Speaker, I repeat, we've given a billion pounds since the conflict began. We're in support of, of UN resolutions. This year, we're contributing another £214 million to support the people of, of Yemen. There are very few other countries in the world, Mr Speaker, that have that kind of record. I think in these tough, straightened circumstances, uh, bearing in mind the immense cost of the COVID epidemic that has affected our country, I think the people of this country should be very, very proud of what we are doing. Oh, Boris Johnson getting a bit more wild there, uh, Tim Shepard. Just put out those two MPs that um, uh, Keir Starmer quoted. The uh, MP for Bournemouth East is, of course, Tobias Elwood, Chair of the Foreign Affairs uh, Select Committee. Oh, no, he's not, is he? He's Chair of the Defence Select, Defense Select, Select Committee. And uh, the other one was Andrew Mitchell, the, the MP for Sutton Coldfield, former International Development Secretary, has also been very critical of it. Boris Johnson's now decided to just 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 cling to that £1 billion figure and keep, keep banging on about it and hope to get to the end of this and probably take some comfort in the fact... This is a 
PMQs this week is about the fifth most interesting political event of the day. Yeah, and he would uh, assume that this would not get much of a write-up um, uh, beyond the Guardian newspaper, I suspect, in the morning. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's right to say we put lots of money in. Um, uh, the question is, what, what's the politics around it? And that's what Keir Starmer's uh, exploring. Oh, well, there we go. Let's go back for the uh, for the final exchange then. Keir Starmer against Boris Johnson at PMQs. Mr Speaker, Britain should be a moral force for good in the world. But just as the US is stepping up, the UK is stepping back. If the Prime Minister and Chancellor are so determined to press ahead with their manifesto-breaking cuts to international aid, cutting the budget to 0.5%, they should at least put that to a vote in this House. Will he have the courage to do so? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, we are going to get on with our agenda of delivering for the people of this country and spending more than virtually any other country in the world. By the way, spending more still than virtually any other country in the G7 on aid. It's a record, I think, of which this country can be proud. Given the difficulties that this country faces, Mr Speaker, I think that the people of this country will think that we've got our priorities right. He can't work out, Mr Speaker, what his priorities are. One minute uh, he's backing uh, us on the roadmap. The next week he's turning his back on us. Uh, one, one week, well, he can't even be, he can't, he can't even address a question on the issues of the hour. He's going to have a, he's, he, he could have asked anything about the coronavirus pandemic, Mr. Speaker. Instead, he's consecrated his questions, uh, he's consecrated questions entirely to the interests of the people of Yemen, Mr. Speaker. We are, and, and we are doing everything we can to support the people of, of Yemen, given the constraints that we face. We're getting on, Mr. Speaker, with a cautious but irreversible roadmap to freedom, which I hope that he will support. And very shortly, Mr. Speaker, you will be hearing a budget for recovery. I think I already know most of it. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> Common Speaker Lindsay Hoyle there pointing out that, uh, uh, as, he, as he often does, he gets very irritated with things that turn up in the papers before they're announced in the House of Commons. Uh, Boris Johnson basically letting rip his frustration there that Keir Starmer didn't ask him ask about things which are going well. <laughs> ask me about the things which are going well so I can tell you that they're going well rather than something else. And he, he basically, I mean, he, 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 to say that he concentrates his questions entirely uh, on uh, on the people of Yemen, as if that, that was not a perfectly legitimate thing for the leader of the opposition uh, to ask about. No, but actually, I think Boris Johnson, uh, you know, made a perfectly good point at the top of that answer, which is that uh, the vast majority of voters will, I suspect, think that uh, the government has made the right judgment call in cutting what was a very high aid budget um, and prioritising, um, you know, um, uh, charity beginning at home. Um, Pretty much every poll shows that that is overwhelmingly popular. And ultimately, that's why the government uh, were prepared to do it. Um, you know, we're still putting in £12 billion a year. Um, uh, we've taken four back. And that will, um, I think, you know, I think a lot of voters would agree with that, particularly, I suspect, <laughs> inside number 10, they would argue in those red wall seats that, you know, we talk about a lot that the Tories won from Labour in 2019. And, you know, part of Boris Johnson, when he sits down and calms down a bit, will be happy that Keir Starmer, as we said earlier, appears to be, you know, asking questions that would um, uh, give sucker to the left of his party, um, rather than ones that, um, you know, are likely to play better in the marginal seats. And, you know, ultimately, that's what this game is all about. Um, and Starmer has an exposed left flank at the moment, and it, it, it makes political sense for him to try and shore that up a bit. Um, but there'll be Tories who'll be clipping 
some of Starmer's thoughts today, and you could imagine them in uh, election adverts in a few years' time. Oh, I just need to bring you some uh, fashion news, Tim Shipman. Uh, two things to note. Keir Starmer's wearing glasses. I don't know what that means. Um, maybe maybe he's going for the sort of Clark Kent uh, look and he's going to whip them off uh, in time for the budget. More interestingly, on the front bench, Angela Rayner, Labour's deputy leader, is wearing a La T-shirt made by friend of the show Philip Normal. Um, regular listeners will know that uh, he's the mayor of Lambeth, but he's also a fashion designer. He designed some T-shirts with La written on the front of them, uh, off the back of the It's a Sin show. He's raised, I think, over a quarter of a million pounds for um, the Terence Higgins Trust. And yeah, uh, Angela Rayner is sporting one underneath her suit jacket. I wish I had an intelligent response to that. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe we'll have to we'll have to investigate to see if she put that on expenses because she seems. I to hear the last thing. There she goes, but um, you know that's. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bit of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. is available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.